From the Teradata Pulse Real-Time Operations Center in San Diego, California, this is Datacast. So, who are you? <laughs> Why are we talking to you? <laughs> so, I am Rob Armstrong. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast today. Uh, I have been longtime Teradata folk. How long? Uh, so, I started in 1987. Um, actually, employee 340 of the company. Uh, so, an original Teradatan. And uh, throughout the career, I started with um, research and development, and I was in what they called the RASR organization, reliability, availability, serviceability, and repairability. Did you start off writing code? So yes, I started off writing code. Wow, great. <laughs> I know many people who see me today don't believe that, but no, uh, my job was to get all the information back from our customers at the time, mm -hmm. the monthly uh, dump of their errors and problems and their logs, and do statistical analytics on it with SQL to come up and figure out what is the most common problem in the system. And then I would be the one who would say, okay, we have a problem with an AMP. So send that to the AMP people or the problems, the, the Ynet, send it to the Ynet people. So my job was to, to know enough about everything that I can get it to the people who knew everything about something. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, then, then went out to the field and uh, implemented uh, what is... You know, now the legend of the Walmart system spent three years in Bentonville, Arkansas. So yeah, how? So speaking of teradata, as in terabyte, how big was that system? So originally it was a thirty gigabyte POC. So terabyte was a dream. Terabyte was a dream. Um, you need to remember that back then, and we were selling disk drives that were five hundred megabytes. And they weighed 75 pounds. <laughs> wow. So even, even then, we were, we were on kind of the leading edge of what you could do with data at the time. Everybody said, who would ever have a terabyte of data? Um, and we were talking to people where 10 gigabytes was a big system. And so we go to Walmart, their 30 gigabyte system. And after our POC was successful, we jumped straight to 300 gigabytes. That was our big uh, initial implementation of store item sales. And uh, from there, we jumped to one terabyte, and we sold the company like a week and a half later to NCR. So my always said, terabyte, uh, a goal, not a vision. <laughs> <laughs> so at that time, was that one of the largest systems in the world? That was the largest system in the world. First system with a terabyte of usable disk space available to it. You know, it's incredible how much things have evolved over time. I mean, at that point, were they... Presumably, they were still doing analytics on their data. Yes. Yeah, so what they were doing is very simple. Uh, what they wanted to do was understand store sales, understand item movement through the store. And what they were doing was a weekly aggregation of the top-selling items in the top-selling stores. Uh, that was before Teradata got there. And they said, we need to see item movement at the store level. And everybody told them that that was impossible. In fact, one of the great quotes from uh, the Walmart executives was, they succeeded because they didn't have people that knew this was impossible. <laughs> right? they, the, 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 us Teradata folks actually believed what we were saying, and we brought six quarters of data together in a single environment at the store item level. And then we had daily columns. So uh, for each store, each item, we had a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, et cetera, bucket. So considering that you'd never done this before, I, I bet the first time you demonstrated that, it was probably a nail-biter. Well, for us, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually kind of interesting. We loaded all the data, 
So the meeting that happened was uh, we all walk into the room. We had loaded the data that we were going to use. As they walked into the room, one of the executives picked an item off of an end cap uh, in the headquarters. And he walked in and basically said, tell me the sales of this item <laughs> for the last five weeks in this region. And we took a little while. You know, we, we wrote some code. We were using just SQL at the time, but it was pretty simple. And the query came back in a few minutes. And he basically was like, "This, we're done. You know, that if you could answer the question that you never knew I was going to ask while I'm sitting here, you know, this proves something. Yes. And that moved us to go ahead and uh, go up to the 300 gigabyte system. And, uh, and, it, and it was fun. It took us a summer to uh, implement it. So it was from May. I actually remember this. It was Memorial Day to Labor Day. But as you say, you know, it's basic. What they were doing was basic analytics of uh, movement. Now, basic, what have we done? Basic in retrospect. Basic in retrospect. But, but I still say uh, one of my famous quotes is, what you do with data is your business. And your business hasn't really changed. Because retailing is still, what items do I need in what venue to sell to what people at what time? Now, of course, it's changed that we have the, net, uh, the, the internet now, we have virtual stores, but you're still trying to figure out what's the best price to position a product in front of my customers and how do I deliver it to them. So retailing still retailing. The depth and breadth that you can get on retailing has exploded. And the scale that, that we operate at, I mean, for the, for the kind of echelon of customers that we deal with is, is pretty incredible. It remains that way. I think that uh, one of my colleagues mentioned to me that if you look at what we were doing 10 years ago, our competitors still can't do it today. And, and yes, with, with uh, that early implementation, um, people looked at it and said, this shouldn't be possible. Uh, I will say it was one of the funny samples that we did was tried to track a shopping cart through a store with, you know, you put a tracker on the shopping cart, you know where it went through the store, how long it's at the store, what you would now think of as just simple path analytics. Uh, and the data it created was so voluminous, we had no clue what to do with it. <laughs> and there was no place that we could have put it. Uh, but that kind of said, this is what we need to be doing. This is where we need to be going. How do we solve those types of problems? And uh, now you look at it and you can get a terabyte on your PC or your Mac. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of course. And back then it was uh, two moving vans of equipment to get a one terabyte system into a data center. Wow. <laughs> so that's what pulled up to the Walmart while you watched and supervised. Four days of, in of uh, installing around the clock. And my job was to make sure they had pizzas at the right time and donuts at the other times. <laughs> so. So if you look back on your career doing solving these kinds of problems for people, how do you what do you feel the broad strokes are? If we kind of pull back and just look at, at how it's evolved yeah. since then. So I, I think that if you look at it, uh, there's been a couple categories or broad brushes, if you will. I mean, the first part obviously was just reporting and what's happened, what's happening in the environment. Of course, people were still weekly. Uh, getting to daily was hard. Uh, getting to hourly was almost seen as a as a pipe dream, but obviously people were saying, how do I make that happen? Um, so it is kind of the what happened, what is happening as much as I can. And that really was from the you know late 80s to almost the mid to late 90s, right? I, I'm sorry, it was the early 80s to the uh, to the mid 90s where people were saying, you know, I need to understand my business. 
And one of my mantras was, well, if you can't see your data, you can't understand your business. So, so that was this whole part. Um, after that, people move from the what is happening to how do I influence things to happen? So not only what's happening, but what can I predict will happen very shortly, and how do I influence either it to happen sooner or to make it not happen at all? Do you have an example of that? Certainly. So one of the other fun examples that I was uh, engaged in was the whole airline world, right? And this was, I have disruptions in flights. I have late flights, I have delays, I have uh, repairs or what have you. And that just causes a huge ripple throughout the entire system. So I can know at 9 a.m. that I have flights at 6 p.m. that are going to be affected, so now my question is, and we worked with some airlines doing this, and I called it understanding your business turbulence, kind of a, a play oh, on, very, the, very clever. Uh, on the whole airline world, yes. is that how do I understand turbulence so far in advance, I fly around it. So now I could say, I have a, a, a jet that has a mechanical at 6 a.m. Well, I know that's going to delay this flight, so it's not going to take off on time. If it doesn't take off on time, it won't land on time. You can see that ripple throughout the system. You can start to see the ripple. And the question is, how do I interrupt the ripple? Can I simply just cancel one flight to make up for it and get everyone else rebooked? And were they running that kind of simulation with the data? They weren't at the time. And so the question was, it was kind of an interesting uh, uh, situation because what they said is, you know, when the plane lands late, I actually had an airline tell me this, when the plane lands late, I have minutes to figure out what to do about it. And I said, no, you knew the plane was going to land late hours before it did. <laughs> uh, so it was this whole idea. But the other thing that we pointed out was the plane landing late's not the problem or it's not the only problem because... I need to know who's on the plane I care about, what connections do they have, what's the status of every connection that they have, because I've landed at airports and they said, don't worry, all the planes are late. You'll make your connection, it will just be late. Uh, then you extend out to, what about the crew? Because the crew's on other planes, and I need to know the status of every plane, of every crew member that's going to go over to a different crew. And aren't there limitations on how long they can work? There's, oh, there's, there's clearly limitations on all that. There's catering. There's baggage. Uh, in fact, a plane recently I was on, they had to stop us, delay us, because they were carrying cargo. And because of a other delay, they put more people onto our plane. Well, now our plane was overweight because it had the cargo. So now what they had to do is analysis and say, if we take the cargo off the plane, when can we actually get it delivered? And they had to get approval from headquarters to say, yes, you can take off the cargo rather than kick off passengers. So there's an enormous number of dimensions. And I imagine when you started, people couldn't even imagine that that was a solvable problem. Really what the interesting eye-opener was is the way they thought to solve it was build silos for everything. Silos meaning completely separate stores of data. Completely separate stores of data and stores of analytics, right? Share the data so we have uh, uh, crew scheduling. And then we've got one for baggage. Then we've got one for catering. Then we've got, and what we showed them with this rippling effect is you would have to move all data everywhere or you move all process somewhere. Mm. And so the point was bring the data together. Uh, one of my favorite um, quotes come from a book, uh, Robo Apocalypse, but basically it was data is not interesting. It's a relationship between data that's fascinating. 
So having data is not the point. Having the relationship of the data is the point. So we needed to say, bring the data together so you all have the relationship together, and now I can do my analytics. Whereas if my data is all over the place in different silos, I break the relationships. Was that basically the origin of data warehousing? Kind of. The, I mean, the story probably has a lot of different variations of it now. The way I remember it is uh, one of our customers was talking to a reporter and said something silly like, it's like we have this big data warehouse and I can just go in and pull the data I need out of the warehouse. And, you know, boom, uh, a term was created. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because back then I just, it's a database. Right. You're not thinking in metaphors because you're actually, you know, fluent with the stuff. Whereas yeah. when he had to dumb it down for a reporter, that was the metaphor that and popped out. And unfortunately, what happened there was the term data warehouse became synonymous with a database. And a data warehouse is so much more than just the database. It's all the process and management and rigor associated with how do I ingest data, manage it effectively, and drive use out of it. Mm. Because if I'm not driving usage out of my data, then why do I keep it? Right. So you feel like data warehousing did become synonymous with databases, even though in, in your experience with customers, the database is just the start of it. It's all the process. It's all the um, how to unify the analytics across the organization. Uh, the database is a piece of the data warehouse. That's all. Right? And, and it's a much bigger uh, uh, problem to solve when I say I need a quote-unquote data warehouse. Uh, just like, you know, I'll use the analogy even though I don't like it. If I have a warehouse for my products, I need to have management of what products, what packages that I put on what shelf at what time, who has access to it, when did they access where it. Where the products came from. Where, where it came from. I need to have all that lineage, rigor, management, governance. Yes. Otherwise, I just have a storeroom. And you know, if you've ever seen uh, Storage Wars on TV, they open some of those doors, and that's not a storage place you want to go into. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can't find anything. Yeah. So that takes us through like mid-90s, you said. Yeah, mid to late 90s. Uh, and then what happened? And so you know, we moved from the reporting and what we call you know, after the fact analytics into this operationalization and operationalization of analytics. So now my analytics can happen at the time of business. They could actually direct and change business. So that, that's very useful. Uh, Excellent. So we're seeing a little bit of that in the airport example where they're, uh, I guess, simulating the effects of a late landing throughout the system. But now you're saying that people are starting to apply this to other businesses and and even earlier than that. So clearly goes to all other businesses. We can give examples of uh, manufacturing, understanding when and predicting when I'm going to run out of a part. Well, if I run out of a part, my manufacturing stops. That's really bad. So, But I don't want to carry so much inventory that my holding costs are too high. So I had this whole idea of just-in-time inventory. That's interesting. So, so it may be fair to say that this kind of uh, data warehouse is a requirement for just-in-time manufacturing. It, it clearly, the ability to understand your business as the business runs is critical. Right? And, and as I say, a lot of people confuse transactional versus operational versus analytical, uh, they think they're different things. They're not. It's uh, using the data at the appropriate time. And, and the same data is used in many different ways. So it is, uh, I believe, you know, when we 
operationalized the warehouse. Uh, that was a huge game changer because then people started looking and saying, well, now I need more data. And right around that time, you know, again, it's, you'll be hazy on what the year is, yeah. but I'd say mid-aughts, you know, you yeah. start looking in teradata co- uh, customers have grown very large. You know, we're beyond terabytes now. We're into petabytes now. And people are saying, well, how do I store that much data effectively um, and really get usage of it? And some of our competitors that couldn't do this, right, were offering solutions. And people started looking around and said, well, how do you handle big data? Right? And which I always laughed at because big data is, to me, a meaningless term. It's relative. <laughs> it's Wal- very relative. Walmart's big data when you started with them was, was a little bit smaller. Everyone always has big data until they tackle it. <laughs> <laughs> right? but, but people started looking and saying, how do you do this? And that's when the whole world of the Hadoop environment and the low-cost storage of very large data volumes starts coming into play. Now, Teradata has been able to scale to hold these data volumes already. Mm-hmm. The question that our customers started asking is, is there enough value in the data? to store it in what is arguably a higher cost, right? Because I need nodes, I need, uh, I need the, the storage, obviously. But when I buy a Teradata environment, I buy all the IP and intelligence and experience of a well-defined, highly governed database. Right. But if all I want to do is store data, I don't need all of that. And I feel like sometimes folks don't even know what they want to do with it yet, but they're, they perceive it's valuable. They need to shove it somewhere. Yeah, so it's, I need to put it somewhere. I'll put it into my storage room or into my garage because I don't know when I'm going to use it. Right. But I want to make sure I have it if I need it. Well, in that scenario, it was how do I do this at the lowest cost possible? And Teradata understood that. And we said, well, you're, you're right. If all you're going to do is store the data and not analyze the data, don't come to Teradata. We are a terrible system to just hold data. Our value is in the analytics of data, not the storage of data. And so people started moving to the Hadoop world, uh, you know, lots of different flavors with all that. And Teradata basically said, hey, either we have to bastardize everything we've been and accommodate this world, or let's embrace the world and figure out, just like we do with data marts and data labs and silos, how do we integrate across this environment so that uh, the user does not have to know they're going to different places? Yes. And that was the explosion of what we call the unified data architecture, where we had data lakes and data warehouses, uh, and we had... Uh, query federation, what we call query grid, across the environment so users didn't have to know that my data is sitting in one place. And we can give you some examples of that. You mentioned unified data architecture, which is sort of an, an ideal conceptual uh, view of, of a complete system that Teradata built originally. Well, I wouldn't say we built originally. Uh, there were concepts of this. Uh, Gartner called it the logical data warehouse. Uh, some people called it a virtualized data warehouse. You know, so there are different names. But the idea was it's no longer a single environment to store all data. And in all honesty, there was a lot of data people wanted to store that didn't fit into a relational structure. And so to get it into Teradata, which is a relational database, took a lot of time, money, and effort. Did the appearance of uh, things like Hadoop prompt 
the creation of it initially, or was there another event that there were a few? There, I mean, certainly the introduction of people using Hadoop um, and other systems certainly created the need for us. We looked at it and said, "Okay, now you're trying to solve another business problem. I have data." I'm not going to put it in Teradata because either the volume, the low value, or the unstructured nature of it just doesn't make it worthwhile. Uh, so I'm going to put it uh, elsewhere. But the business need is still there. I need to analyze my data in whole. So that's kind of what spurred is the idea was we need an environment where the user shouldn't care where the data sits. Now, I'm going to uh, continue to say where the data sits is important, uh-huh. <laughs> but not all data needs to sit in the same place. Got it. And and that is kind of the misnomer that everyone always thought of the centralized data warehouse was this one monolithic environment. But if you think about it, even in a properly constructed data warehouse with just Teradata, I had a production box, I had a DR box, I had a QA box, I had a test dev box. So I had multiple environments. Right, but that doesn't mean silos because those things all work together and you can use that data together. They all work together. And more importantly, what it caused us to do was build the environments, build the tools that allow me to manage and move data between these environments for consistency with the proper oversight and governance. So we simply had to extend that world to include now the data lake, which was not Teradata necessarily. So the nice part, as I say, when I had DR boxes and all that, at least they were all Teradata. Well, now I have to go interact with things that aren't Teradata. You do, but the customer does not necessarily have to. Customer doesn't have to know that they're doing that. So let's say uh, I'm in manufacturing. Uh, I sell cars, right? I manufacture cars and they go out and and they sell them. So in my data warehouse, quote, unquote, I've got information about who's buying my cars, what dealership they go to, possibly what um, warranty service they have, and whatnot. So that's good. But in my car, I have a ton of sensor information that's coming back to me on a regular basis. And I'm not going to put that in the data warehouse. I'm just not. So I'm going to put it into my data lake. But what I want to understand is which cars are having sensors that are raising alerts, not to the point that a light goes on in the car and the customer gets notified, but, you know, it's still wildly uh, variable and coming out of tolerance. Right. Something notable is happening. Something notable. And I want to know that so that then I can say, okay, I've got a car that is suspect. And what I need to do is contact those owners to be able to get them in for service. Right, or or maybe even preemptively, you might say, oh my gosh, these cars that use a certain part from this manufacturer are suddenly showing this anomaly. Talk to the manufacturer, find out if you know what this means. And so clearly, that's another part is, and guess where all the information about is of which vendor supplied which part into which build. Right. That's in the data warehouse. Absolutely. So who provided part XYZ in December of 2015? Well, I may have had three or four vendors supply that. So now my question is, do all vendors have that same problem? Or do only some vendors have the problem that I'm seeing with the, from the sensor? So your alternative is recall every single car I've ever sold. 
bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> nice to avoid, if you can. That's not a good news article. <laughs> or discreetly understand who are the customers involved. Send them a notice that says, hey, we have seen this from, from uh, your sensors. It's not critical yet. So we suggest you make a scheduled appointment. And what I love about this is it feels like the data is being used to uh, early on reflect on what happened. And then as you say, we approach real time. And now we're kind of looking further and further into the future on how to optimize the business in whatever way. It's Yes, because now it's predictive and proscriptive analytics. Because now I can say, all right, I have Rob Armstrong coming in for an appointment next Tuesday because of this problem we told him about you know what? Maybe I should have the parts available. (laughs) What an idea. uh, You laugh, although, (laughs) and you never want to be a customer that I talk about, because I did go to a a recall. I, you know, phoned up. I have your recall notice. I need to go in, get this fixed. Great. Thank you. And when I got there, he said, well, we're going to flash the software, and there's about a 25% chance that's the problem. Otherwise, we'll have to repair and replace the part. Like, fine. So then they called me and they said, well, you're in that 75% and we have to order the part. And I'm just thinking, you knew I was coming in. Wow. You knew what I was coming in for. You knew what the probability was and you don't have the part. That is a failure of... That's, well, no, it's not a failure of data. It's a failure of analytics. Bingo. Right? They had all the data. Yeah. Data without analytics is worthless. What this all gets down into, though, is that the relationship is really what you're trying to drive, because now I understand Rob has a car going to a dealer for a repair that requires a part. Those are all the relationships I need. So now the question is, okay, well, what's happened in these past few years that we've gone, people are now getting around the big data, and it's just called more data, right? (laughs) Bigger data? Yeah, yes, lots more data. Um, You know, so what's new here? is what we're starting to see is people are going back to the idea of to solve a problem, create a silo. Why is that happening? So the reason Why did we forget the lessons of the past, Rob? Because we don't have 30 years experience. Oh, yeah, not all of us. (laughs) We have a bunch of, you know, people coming out of college that are now data scientists that have never done any business. Uh, But what they know how to do is move and manipulate data to solve a prescribed problem. So they come out and they say, well, I've got my tools. I've got my R. I've got my uh, Spark. I've got my uh, whatever uh, tool, you know, Mm -hmm. Bob's language of the day. Uh They've got their Jupyter Notebook. They've got these tools, and they go, okay, now I need data. Well, what data do I need? And they come up with the data that they need. And Mm -hmm. some of it may be in the data lake. Some of it may be in their data warehouse. Some of it may be in the Excel file someplace. And rather than figure out how do I go to these places and bring them in and integrate them, they just say, well, I'm going to just create extracts. Gotcha. So they're not really focused on solving future problems. They just have a specific limited time problem. So they've been told solve this problem. And so they're like, okay, well, if I do this on my own, I don't have to involve IT. I don't have to get permission to other systems. Right. I don't have to worry about that I'm ruining service level agreements someplace because to go into the production boxes, I'm going to be told no. So I'll just get some extracts out. And when you say extracts, you mean not all of the data. 
Not necessarily. Some extracts are very voluminous. We have people that are moving. In fact, I was talking with um, our uh, storage provider a few weeks ago, and he said the top 10 customers that they have create over 50 petabytes of data extraction a week. There, so those are copied silos of the data. Yes, copied silos of data. Oof. And the problem is, is that when I copy data, I instantiate it at, at that point of time. Well, now if my data changes, well, now I need to perpetuate those changes or my analytics are out of date. And they're out of date instantly. The only question is how important... You how know. important is out of date? Well, the other thing that you see is these uh, these folks these that are creating these analytic silos, uh, they don't have the time pressure of business. What they're told is go solve this problem, play around with it, find out something. And they may take a few months. They may uh, run some queries. They run hours and hours and hours, and they gain insight. Well, that's good until you solve the problem for the business owner and you represent that to the business owner and they go, this is wonderful. I'd like this every hour. <laughs> of course. And and How and I really I get don't this on a dashboard in real time. I, I in fact I don't even want a dashboard. I want you to alert me on the things that I think are interesting. Even better. So now I need to have personal and portable analytics, which is a great thing. Right. Uh, and that is a whole different order of scale than solving the problem in three months and letting the queries run hours and hours. Because, and I'll just harken back to retailing or the airlines or telco or whatever you want to say, is that when I want to operationalize this, I need to do it for probably all regions, all products, all calendar segments, because I have tens of thousands of business users and consumers of data, and they each have a different flavor of the question. Right. And so they could be asking the same question in slightly different ways and getting radically different results if you don't operationalize the data science. So there's that. They can also be asking the same question just for different perspectives. So let me give you an example. Um, we're both medical care analysts people. What I need to know is, what is the path to care for knee surgery? What you need to know is, what is the path to care for brain surgery? They're the same analytics for the most part. It's just I'm going to be focusing on different data than you're going to focus with. So do I create silos for every attribute? No. What I need to be able to do is say run this analytic and make it parameterized enough that it's applicable to anybody. But that's really one data science task. It's not a 1,000, or it should right, be. Right, it's one data science task, not a 1,000. Well, now we take that and say, okay, well, once I've got that, now my questions can start to ripple, much like the air turbulence, or the business turbulence, let's ripple out and say, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, and now I understand my path to care, maybe what I need to now start doing is understanding what is the initial onset, what are the diagnostics that we have there, what are the drugs that we have there, what are the, the doctors that we have there, do we have the right doctors seeing the right patients at the right time to prevent us getting to the point where surgery is necessary? So you're saying by extracting the data into a silo to solve, you know, one facet of that problem, you're not kind of getting the insight for, for all the different potential paths. That's true. So not for all the potential paths, but also every patient is different. Oh, so even the path to care is different among, uh, for every patient. Well, clearly. Um, if I have a triathlete that runs 17 miles a day and he has knee pain and he's going to have knee surgery the path to care and the path after care 
are completely different than, let's say, somebody like me who does not run 17 miles a day, maybe a little overweight, uh, and, you know, giving me a new knee is going to be a little bit different experience than giving the other person a new knee. So I have to be able to personalize. And when I bring data to silos, this has always been one of those um, paradoxes. When I distribute data out for analytics, I'm always missing some dimension of the analytic. By, by definition, I have to do that. Otherwise, I'm cap capturing all data everywhere. Because you're not working with the complete data set. You're making assumptions about what data you'll need. I'm making assumptions on how to slim down the data set. Okay. And so one of the paradoxes is, is that when you distribute data, you actually localize analytics and localize action because I can only act on the data that I have. When I centralize, and I don't mean physically centralized, but when I've got it logically centralized, I actually lead to distributed actions because now everybody could see the full force. Whereas before, when I distribute out data, I actually force centralization of rules and actions. It's kind of an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, there's, there's a lot less discovery to be had, a lot less insight to be had, because if you're working on the full data set, I imagine that you find some outliers that are really interesting that you couldn't possibly have predicted. It, it, clearly, and that's where we get into the whole world of the data sciences, is tell me what's interesting in my data, because I don't know to ask the question I don't know. So now we're getting into the area that says... Let the data tell me what's interesting. Now, here comes the big problem. Uh-huh. Remember, data's not interesting. <laughs> Relationships are interesting. So if my data's bad, I'm not going to get good output. And one of my new learnings is the worst data scientist in the world with good data will do better than the best data scientist with bad data. So I need that good, clean, integrated data to be able to drive the analytics and data science. Let me give you a quick example, right? Self-driving cars. <laughs> they need good data because if I don't understand which lane my car's in and who's around me, I will make really bad decisions about what to do. So I need good, clean data, but I also need integrated data because I need data about what lane I'm in, and who's next to me. So if the person in front of me slams on the brakes, you'll I, know whether you can evade safely. Whether I can go, right? So that's just, you know, and that's on the edge, obviously. Now, do we capture all that data? Do we bring it back? Do we drive analytics? You know, that's the whole edge compute versus central compute, which may be a different topic. That'll be another good episode. Right. But the uh, example I give, uh, it's kind of a fun one, is because uh, people kind of get confused about edge compute and central compute, is um, if you've ever put your hand on a hot stove, your hand moves before your brain knows about it. Because moving your hand is really, really important. <laughs> right? So when the car in front of you slams on its brakes, we don't need your car to go call up a centralized database and say, the car in front of me is suddenly braking. What should I do? <laughs> All right. I hope LTE coverage is good where you are. Right. So... So that's kind of what we say, you know, I, I need to be able to act uh, in the moment, but I need to send that message to my brain and say, by the way, stoves may be hot. <laughs> so next time when you walk by a stove, you don't put your hand on it. And the fun part about this is 
is I shouldn't have my left hand have to learn that message and my right hand learn that message, right? And that's what you know, I call swarm intelligence, and that's what we're getting to is that as we get more data from more devices, I learn at the aggregate level. So I don't have to have every device learn the same thing over and over and over, right? I don't have to have every car crash to know that I shouldn't crash. And how do I avoid a crash? So you're touching on a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning stuff. How is that changing this world? So, and this is what we call um, uh, prescriptive analytics, which is the idea of identifying future events and responding to them and, and all that. So a lot of things have come up, and this is where we get into the world of data science and AI and all. So a couple ways. One, good, clean, integrated data. And again, I don't mean integrated that it has to be in the same data center and the same data base, but uh, you know, if my data in the data lake has a different VIN number than the person I insure, then I am never going to understand that. So that's what I mean by integrated data. Right, and integrated in the sense that the relationships, which, which as you noted, are the most important thing, are easily identifiable, easily queryable. Yeah, we preserve the relationships. Um, but the other thing that's happening in this world is... To understand what to do, we are going to data scientists and saying, you know, run these analytics, find out these things. And they're using different tool sets now. Uh, there are thousands of different tools. Like more come out every day. Uh, as one of uh, uh, my colleagues, Stephen Brope, says, when a CIO puts a directive on their plan, new startups are born. <laughs> <laughs> And now this whole AI world, so there's more startups coming up and all. But they all are trying to develop new tools and new processes. And so what we're looking at is you need an environment, an architecture, where I can have different tools and languages that leverage my existing data and functionalities. And I need to be able to put different analytic engines together that go against a wide variety of data. So... Rather than look at it in silos, a stack of tool, engine, function, data, mm -hmm. we look at it as an architecture of layers. And we should have any tool and language should be able to call any function or engine that has access to any data storage environment. And so... That's what we're working on, and that's uh, basically what we've come out with with what we call the Teradata Analytics Platform, is this environment that allows any tool or language to be built to access you know, the Teradata database, which is our SQL engine, or can access and um, uh, utilize other engines, graphing engines or machine learning engines. But then at the bottom layer is that data. It doesn't only go after the nice well-mannered, relational, right. structured data in the Teradata database, it also has access, native access, into the Hadoop worlds or into the S3 worlds, into the Azure Blobs worlds. Well, and what's kind of fascinating is when I first started here, I had a lot of kind of preconceptions about Teradata database. And what I've learned is with things like the JSON support, it really is not the rigid, structured beast that it used to be, but it's something, you know, it's really kind of meeting in the middle between data lakes and RDBMSs. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I appreciate that you've come to that conclusion because that is something we've worked very hard on is that uh, we looked and said, why are people storing data in many different places? 
What is it that is causing them to do that? Why aren't they leveraging the environment they have? Now, again, in the past, it was more of a relational database offering, right? So maybe there wasn't a function that we, we had, didn't have a function, somebody else did. Okay, great. How do we get those functions in? You look at geospatial, you know, that's certainly people used to extract data because we didn't have as many geospatial features. Okay, well, now we've resolved that. Columnar. People used to extract data out because we didn't have columnar capabilities. Okay, well, now we do. Uh, JSON, as you point out. And all JSON is is just a different data type. And what we had to do is, and JSON actually sits in a relational database very well because it, it, while it's not structured, quote, unquote, it's just a blob of data. And what we needed to have was how do we interrogate that blob? Well, the nice thing about JSON is the blob is very friendly. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to the movie, if you've ever seen that, that blob was not friendly. You know, these blobs are actually very friendly because they're tagged. And so we just have to, had to have a way to, to navigate them. Because that's how you get to the relationships. That's how you get to the relationships. So, but what we're seeing is there are things that are not relationally friendly. I'll give you an example. Um, text analytics. If you've ever tried to run a text analytics in SQL against an unstructured string of data, you know that you will never do it a second time. Because to try to pull certain words out without knowing where they are in the string is extremely difficult. So we look at that and we say, that's not a relational function. That's not a relationally friendly function. So what we will do is in the environment, you will have a SQL engine, the database. But we will also have a machine learning or advanced uh, function engine, which has text sentiment capability. And what we could do is say, select text sentiment from call center notes in the call center table. Yeah. And all I'm doing, I'm still capturing the data. Yes. Because it's still very rich and very valuable, and I don't want to only take part of my call center table and some of it sits in Hadoop, some of it sits in Teradata. That's the worst thing to do. <laughs> what I want to be able to do is say, go find the calls that I'm interested in and send the call center notes to this advanced engine, a machine learning engine, do the text sentiment on it, and then bring me back the answer set to further integrate in more analytics. But to the, to the data scientist or the person doing the analytics, it's just the query. It's just... A function being applied against data that I am calling with a language. That's all. Love it. Uh, I don't have to know where's the data coming from, what function, what engine is the function going to run on, and how do I customize the code in my language? Because that's the hard part. So, Rob, we've talked a ton about, about the past and about the present. What about the future? You know, people kind of always have said, you know, where does this end and where, when am I done? And the answer is, well, you're not because it it's a journey that constantly continues. And uh, I've often said, the day you no longer need to analyze data, just close your business. Because that means that I no longer need to understand my business and improve my business. So clearly, there's much more on the horizon. But what we're really trying to do is uh, if you think about it, we're trying to do for analytics what we did for data. 
In the past, people had data everywhere. They had data silos. They had data marts, but it was all nice, clean relational data. And we integrated that data into a relational database, Teradata, that scaled and operationalized and all those other fun things. What you see that we're doing is we're doing the same thing for analytics and driving that broader integration across enterprise analytics. So not just silos of analytics, not just for one business unit, but for the broader company. And what I've said, one of my taglines is, what we want to drive is business projects, not science projects. Because when my data scientist, I wish they were called business scientists, <laughs> that's just me. Point taken. When they come up with something interesting, it has to be operationalized at scale. So what we are doing is creating an environment that allows me to develop as I want, but I deploy as I need. And I can go to scale with an optimizer, with uh, workload management, with this uh, unlimited scalability, right? Who would ever need a terabyte of data? (laughs) To, again, bring an analytics to an entire corporation. And that's where it has to go to. It doesn't stop there, but that's where it has to get to is your company has to become a corporate-wide analytic environment. And if you want to know where this all goes next, uh, where it all leads to, we have this vision of a sentient enterprise. And that is where your company could really understand and respond to the stimuli of the business community and drive you further and faster. And that's where this all goes. Rob, thank you so much. As always, pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I look forward to being back on the podcast. This has been Datacast. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like the show, you can help us out by reviewing it in your podcast app of choice and by recommending it to friends. All they need to do is search for Teradata or Datacast in their favorite podcast app. To learn more about how Teradata transforms how businesses work and how people live through the power of data, visit us at teradata.com.